Isaiah chapter 14 today, guys, on our uh, journey through the book of Isaiah, uh, the, the entire chapter in a message entitled, I Will or Thy Will. So let's take our hearts uh, to the Lord. Father, once again, we just say thank you for joining us here together. We pray, God, that you would uh, just help us to uh, ha- have the, uh, how do I say, have ears to hear you, God. Uh, whatever you want to say, however you want to say it, that we would respond appropriately to it, Father. We want to be doers of your word, not hearers only. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here who's just struggling and, and uh, maybe waxing and waning in their walk with you, God, that today you would just sure them up, strengthen them, God, that we would just be renewed in that first love relationship and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. We all say... Amen. Guys, near-far fulfillment of prophecy. It's a commonplace principle that's threaded throughout uh, the prophetic writings. We established it in our previous passage. You might just want to download that, uh, chapter 13, give it a listen if you want the details on that. But we spoke in our last gathering of the biblical reference to Babylon, how it's not only a physical uh, kind of historical place, but spiritually it typifies or kind of represents the kingdom of the world system apart from God. Now in chapter 13, God promises the destruction of the kingdom of Babylon and Everything that it entails, here in chapter 14, he promises the destruction of its king. And as with the previous chapter, I believe that uh, these words that we're going to read have application not only to a physical king, but I also believe that they speak to the power behind that king, uh, even uh, Satan himself. Now, you don't have to agree with me on that. Um, I Here at Calvary Chapel, we respect everyone's right to be wrong if that's what they should so choose. Um, but there are great people on both sides of that perspective. I believe that their support does suggest that what Isaiah is speaking to here applies to more than just a man, okay? But, guys, who is the king of this world system that has rejected Jesus Christ? Go ahead, Satan. When Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, Satan came to him, and we read that then the devil taking him up on a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Notice all of them. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, he says to Jesus, If you will worship before me, all will be yours. Now, did Jesus, when Satan said that to him, did Jesus contend with him and say, hey, you can't give the kingdoms of this world to anyone because they're not yours to give? No, he didn't do that at all. Adam forfeited his dominion over the earth in the garden when he fell. He delivered it to Satan, the one who tempted and when he willfully sinned. Now, this world system is under Satan's rule. You know, people want to blame God for the way this world is. Guys, the devil's the one you need to be looking at for that. He's the one who's currently ruling over it. Now, uh, his rule will come to an end, and we see that even here in Isaiah 14. But Paul, you remember, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, referred to Satan as the God, lowercase g, of this age, who has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. Now, the world won't look like this, won't show out like this, won't rebel like this when Jesus is ruling over it, uh, which we pray will be soon, amen? 
Now look at verse 1. We read in verse 1 of chapter 14, for the Lord will have mercy. Remember he's talking about the destruction of Babylon. But the Lord, So the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will choose Israel and settle them, and will still chill, choose Israel, pardon me, and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them and they will cling to the house of Jacob. And then uh, people will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. They will take them captive, whose captives they were, and rule over their oppressors. Uh, in other words, a role reversal is in order and on the way for the nation of Israel. They're not going to be the underdogs of the world. They'll be the top dog among the nations. And God is assuring Israel that even in judgment, as they you know, slide off or are taken captive into Babylon, even in judgment, he won't forget them. He'll have mercy on them. He will still choose them, restore them, and people will be blessed to just be connected to or associated with them. Now, obviously, guys, this particular aspect of this prophecy has not happened yet. A, because uh, Israel has not been restored to the full scope of the land that God had promised them. And uh, B, they're not the preeminent nation of the world yet. But when God restores them and Jesus is ruling uh, there in Israel from Jerusalem, uh, they won't have any problems with the nations of the world around them. But we love this phrase, don't we? The Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel. You know, sometimes we can kind of get the feeling that, yeah, God chose us, but maybe given the chance to do it again, we're not sure if he would still choose us. You know, we feel like we've messed up so bad. We've sinned so egregiously. We've, we've sinned and erred so you know, miserably. We've acted so defiantly that God I just kind of stuck with us now. And if we were to do it again, surely he would choose differently. But the heart of God here says, no, I still choose you even presently. Listen, there is a marvelous attribute of God that the Bible refers to as foreknowledge. And what that means is that God knows the end from the beginning. Not only as it relates to world history, but as it relates to your life personally. And this is why, listen to me, it's impossible. Did you realize it's impossible to disappoint God? Guys, he already knows your every decision. Now, he doesn't force your decision. He's not responsible for your decision. And in many cases, he does not condone nor approve of your decisions or mine. But he knows them nonetheless. And for all the dumb self-centered, unthoughtful decisions you've ever made and will make, and you know you've made some doozies. God not only chose you, but he still chooses you. He has so loved you that he gave his only begotten son for you. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not the well who are in need of a physician, but the sick. And Jesus didn't come to call the righteous but the sinner to repentance. Guys, can we just all give God some praise for that? Amen. Come on, let's say amen. Amen. Now look at verse 3. It shall come to pass in the day 
the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and your and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say let me just say here uh, that uh, though the obvious interpretation of this verse is, is belonging to Israel, I want you to know that God promises a day of real rest, genuine freedom from fear, not only for the nation. Guys, and I would say this too, with regard to Israel, that day is not this day. Guys, you go to Israel right now, you see guards armed to the hilt, they're walking around everywhere, there's soldiers everywhere, and they're ready to go to work at the drop of a hat. Uh, that is not rest. That is not freedom from fear. But that day is coming. Having said that, that the interpretation for this belongs to Israel, surely there is application in this for every believer in Jesus Christ, both presently as well as eternally. Guys, Jesus gives us rest from our sorrows. Anyone know what I'm talking about? That doesn't mean that you're never going to have a sad day, but that he takes away our pain. He brings healing to our soul. We call it the great exchange. If you're interested, you might write it down so you can read it later. It's in Isaiah chapter 61 where we read that God gives us beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Come let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they're red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Uh, God gives us rest from our sorrow, uh, from our fear and our hard bondage in which we were made to serve. How many of you came to the conclusion that being enslaved to sin is a rigorous, unrelenting hardship? You know what I'm talking about? That's why Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor are heavy laden and burdened. I will give you, what's the word? Rest. Rest for your soul. We rest from the fear of, you know, hoping I didn't do too much wrong and that I did enough things right so that, you know, God will be pleased with me. Listen, it's not about me laboring to do or not do. It's about resting in what Jesus has done upon the cross and the shedding of his blood for the remission of my sin. But Isaiah writes that in the day that Israel receives rest, look at verse 4, that you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, how the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased, the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, he who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, and he who ruled the nations in anger is persecuted, and no one hinders. The whole earth is at rest and quiet, and they break forth into singing. Indeed, the cypress tree rejoices over you, and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were cut down, no woodsman has come against us. So again, guys, near far fulfillment. Was the king of Babylon defeated physically? I mean, historically, was he? Not a trick question. Yes, 
He was. We see the fall historically in the book of Daniel. Remember, we talked about it last time when I said, I'm not trying to make you feel dumb. When I say you remember, but you go, I don't remember. And I say the, the whole key or the whole point is to try and inspire you to look up and learn. And we talked about many, many tekel, you farsen, you know, your days you found wanting. And I said, what happened? And I said, look it up. Remember that? Some of you are like, nah, I don't know. Most of you remember the handwriting on the wall incident. It's in the book of Daniel. But in that sense, the oppressor of Israel ceased. There would be rest. There would be rejoicing. The question, was the whole earth at rest? Well, did the earth break forth in singing? No. So let's not forget, with prophecy, it's fairly common, this dual kind of fulfillment. Guys, the time is coming when the spiritual empire of Babylon will be crushed and its king, Satan, will be destroyed. Now again, I want to be clear here that there are some who strongly disagree with me at, at this juncture in this passage. They see this passage as purely historical, uh, referring only to the literal king of Babylon and nothing more. And that's okay. I personally believe there's good reason to see this in light of both the ancient king of Babylon and the spiritual power behind that king. And so this proverb was in the mouth of the returning exiles when Babylon was finally conquered and the people of Judah could return to the promised land. But ultimately, it will be fulfilled when it sounds forth from the mouth of God's people when this world system, apart from God and its king, Satan, are conquered and destroyed. Guys, God tells us that the destiny of Babylon and its king is destruction, the one who struck the people in wrath and ruled the nations in anger. And notice he struck with a continual stroke. Satan refuses to relent in his wrath against mankind. Now, think about this. Why would God tell his people, be it in the immediate sense or the ultimate sense, the destiny of Babylon and her king? How many times have you ever looked back over your life and thought, you know, if I only knew then what I know now? And you can finish that statement in whatever context it may apply. But the statement essentially says, now that I can see how things turned out, I may have done a few things differently, right? Well, guess what? God is telling you how things turn out. Now you and I have the opportunity to make decisions and lead our lives accordingly. He's given us a little insight, some of that foreknowledge. Guys, Satan's days are numbered. The day is coming. His oppression will cease. The Lord will break the staff of the wicked. There are times, you guys, that we can get so discouraged by Satan's unrelenting oppression and attacks, we wonder if it'll ever end. Listen, one of the reasons that Satan works so hard is because he knows his time is short. Be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might. Guys, root down, dig in, hold your ground. His time is coming. Truth be told, you guys, 
the, can I just say this? I think that the diligence of the devil is inspiring. Would to God that we worked as hard to see souls saved as he works to see souls destroyed. But the day is coming when he'll be on the receiving end of persecution and the whole earth will be quiet and at rest. There will be rejoicing. There will be singing. Even the trees will rejoice. Now, the literal king of Babylon would deforest and fall, you know, entire regions for fuel, for lumber, and various purposes. But in a spiritual sense, guys, nature, the Bible tells us, even creation is crying out, groaning, being under the, the bondage of corruption. It's in Romans chapter 8. But the day of deliverance is coming. Praise God. Now, look at verse 9. We read, Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you. All the chief ones of the earth it has raised up from their thrones. All the kings of the nations, they all shall speak and say to you, have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Your pomp is brought down to Sheol and the sound of your stringed instruments. The maggot is spread under you and worms cover you. Now, over the next several verses, guys, I'm going to limit my comments pretty much exclusively to the spiritual application with regard to Satan, okay? What's coming for him and why. Uh, on the physical, historical side, we see the pride of a monarch uh, bringing him low, okay? God will deal with the pride of the monarch in view. But here's the thing. Death is the great leveler. You understand that? Listen, the statistics are in. How many of you have come to realize one out of every one people will die? Outside of the rapture, death is the destiny of us all. Now, it doesn't matter who you are on this earth. Uh, like the morning star swallowed up by the rising sun, your glory won't last long. And so the question really shouldn't be, how can I live longer? That seems to be kind of the, the grind of the world today, isn't it? All the medications, all the hell. I mean, I want to I live longer. I want to stay around as, you know, as long as I possibly can. But the question isn't really, how can I live longer? It's how can I be prepared to die? You see... Existence in this world is temporary. What happens when you die is forever. And you and I, listen to me, do well to think about that now and then. Do you realize that the Bible says that it's better for you and me that we would go to a funeral than to a feast? Listen to this. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. You see, in a festive environment, we tend to disregard reality. But at a funeral, we sober right up to it. We think about it, the brevity, the frailty of life, the finality of death, the fact that we're all going to stand before God. And guys, that's good for us. 
because it opens us, it softens our heart to the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And that's why, guys, when I do a funeral, I mean, I will eulogize the one who's passed, the one who's died, but I spend most of my time addressing the ones who live. There's nothing you can do. They're either with the Lord, they're not with the Lord, and you know, we don't want to be disrespectful ever in any you know, situation, but at the end of the day, what's done is done. I got your undivided attention. You see what I'm saying? And so we focus on pointing people to Jesus Christ so they can be prepared to die. Okay, but let's look at what this says. Hell from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the dead for you. Can I tell you something? Uh, Satan is not the Lord of hell. He's not the king of hell as Hollywood or mythology would like to depict him. He is hell's chief prisoner. And hell is excited to receive him. Do you realize that today Satan is not in hell? It says hell is excited to meet you, excited to receive you. You know Satan's not in hell. Satan's never been to hell up to this point. In fact, uh, Peter tells us he roams the earth. You read the book of Job, you realize he has access to heaven Uh, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, he's the accuser of the brethren. He stands before God accusing you day and night. But hell can't wait to be the place of torture, of torment for the one who himself has tortured and tormented so many. Guys, Satan is not a winner. He's a loser. And I don't mean that in a degrading sense of you're a loser. No, I mean he, he loses. He's the one who will lose. He's not hell's overseer. He's hell's victim. And hell will be happy to receive him just that way. And when he's exposed for who he truly is, all those whom he's tortured, everyone who's gone to hell before him will stand in amazement that he's so weak and powerless to affect his destiny no different than they. And they'll mock him as a created being. Too often, people are guilty of exaggerating Satan's status. You know, they see it like God is light, Satan is darkness. God is hot, Satan is cold. You know, this yin and yang kind of equal polarizing opposites. Believe me, Satan wishes he was God's opposite. He's not. If anything, and and God takes great measures here to make that painstakingly clear. Now, if anything, he he may be um, maybe an opposite to Michael, the archangel, perhaps Gabriel. But God is the creator. Satan is a fallen, created, angelic being. God, ladies and gentlemen, has no equal. All right? He alone is worthy of all power and all praise and all glory and all blessing and all strength and all honor. Amen. Amen. Satan's end will be both disgusting and degrading. We read, your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The maggot is spread under you and worms cover you. A translation, maggots are your bed and worms serve as your blanket. 
Why would anyone serve this creature or his cause even for a minute knowing his disgusting, degrading, torturous, and tormented end? But family, if I could strike a sense of urgency in you, maybe light a fire under you to be perhaps a little more bold in your declaring, your sharing of the gospel, listen to me, a torturous Torment awaits all who reject Jesus Christ. Jesus said of those in hell, their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Listen to me, God is not seeking to send people to hell contrary to what some may believe. He's seeking to save people from hell. That's why Jesus came. But now listen to me, it doesn't end there. That's not where it ends. Jesus coming for you will not help if you won't come to him. Do you understand me? In other words, someone can extend their hand to you to save you from falling off the cliff all they want. But if you won't respond to it, if you won't receive it, you won't receive the invitation to be saved, you won't be saved. And so come to Jesus Christ. Call upon him. Believe in him. You see, that's the message. Now, we also know that Satan was associated with music before his fall. You can write down and look up Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 13. Uh, That passage will affirm that for you. And here we see the sound of his stringed instruments will be brought down with him. Guys, I think we all know that Satan has used and still uses music to influence countless souls for evil, ungodliness, carnality, all the things. But that will all come to an end. Now, not music, but the way Satan uses it and manipulates people for ungodliness through it. Now, in verse 12, look, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Now, this is where uh, people get the idea that Satan's name is Lucifer. It may very well be. Uh, Others think that this is a title, and it may very well be. The name or the word Lucifer means morning star or light bearer. Could be a, a, a name proper, could be a title. But even in this, you guys, we see that Satan is not an originator. He is an imitator. And on some level, he seeks to imitate Jesus, who is, you can write it down and look it up, the bright and morning star, Revelation 22, verse 16. He wants to be like the Most High, 
But far from being exalted, we read, he'll be brought low to the lowest depths of the pit. Listen to me. Whether God is dealing with men, with kings, or with angels, Proverbs 16, 18 still stands. You right? Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And how you are fallen from heaven. Guys, I don't know of any man or king that has fallen from heaven. Okay? But as for Satan, what did Jesus say? He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, he can still access heaven currently, but the day is coming he'll be cast out, cast off permanently. And again, I want you to notice that he's associated with light. Son of the morning. Guys, allow me to expound just a little bit more uh, on the person, the character of of Satan. Uh, He is not at all depicted in scripture as Hollywood likes to portray him. You know, as some disgusting, uh, grotesque, horrific looking creature. He's got horns, he's got a forked tongue, you know, whatever. All right? Uh, this, this person who would strike terror, absolute terror in your heart if he appeared before you in true form. That's not, that is not accurate. In fact, he's quite the opposite. Again, you guys, I want you to write it down so you can look it up later. I was going to take you there, but time will forbid us. Ezekiel chapter 28, verses 11 through 19. Now, Satan uh, was created with pipes and precious jewels is perfect in wisdom and in beauty. He comes to you as light, as something good, something alluring, something attractive. Yes, demonic creatures can take the form of personified evil, but more than not, the Bible tells us that they come as angels of light, deceptive, appealing, tempting, and misleading. Write it down so you can read it later. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. And we see here, again, power behind, the power behind the thrones. You who weakened the nations. Guys, the Bible's pretty clear on the fact that it is not uncommon for there to be spiritual powers and principalities assigned and connected to and bringing influence over political powers around the world. Okay? Uh, Here we're seeing it with regard to Babylon. You see it in Daniel chapter 10. Remember the prince of Persia. You see it in Ezekiel 28, the king of Tyre. You see these assignments of these uh, powers and principalities behind the political forces uh, in the world. He says, for you have said in your heart... Guys, I say it over and over and over. God is always looking to your heart. You don't have to say something out loud for it to be established in your heart. And these are the five I will statements of Satan. This is the why behind what happened and what will happen to him. And really, you guys, it's here that we find sin in its embryo, its seed form. Sin is rooted, listen to me, in the will, okay? 
And anytime I set my will over or above or against God's will, I'm entering into sin. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is where sin is rooted. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone, notice, to his own way, that is his own will, and the Lord has laid on him, that is Christ, the iniquity, the sin of us all. And this is now the, what we call the natural state of man. We're going our own way. We're about our own will. We cannot obey God on our own. We need to be, the words are, born again as by the Spirit of God. But any time that I'm putting my will, right? I will, we read here over and over again. Above God's, I'm placing myself in the place of God. Does that make sense to you? When I put my will above God's, I'm putting myself in the place of God. And this is why Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him, what are the words? deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What was it that Jesus said when he was facing the cross? He said, not my will, right? But yours, Father, be done. And this is why I titled the message, I will or thy will. What is the emphasis of your heart? Because listen to me, selfish ambition will destroy your life. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars, which is another way of saying the angels, okay, of God. What's the take home here? Be careful of always promoting yourself. Drawing attention to what you can do and what you have to offer. And, I, and of course, I understand that in the world we live, sometimes you, you're looking for that promotion, whatever, at, at work, and you want the boss to understand the skill set you bring. That's not what I'm talking about. He's promoting the self. He wanted to be recognized as above or being superior to his peers, a cut above the rest, deserving of special recognition. Be careful. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther side of the north, establishing himself in that place of glory and honor and recognition. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, more of the same, rising higher and higher, I will be like the most high. Again, not above God, but like God. Uh, he wants worship, recognition, and praise. Remember, we quoted it earlier. He sought to get Jesus to worship him there in Matthew chapter 4. And so the heart of Satan, and listen, just let it resonate in your own being. You, only you know what's happening in you between you and the Lord. But the heart of Satan is pride. It's desire for recognition, uh, for praise and exaltation above his peers, a cut above. He wants to be like God. Guys, it's like that person who's so talented, so gifted in so many arenas. It just seems like whatever they put their hands to, they excel. But rather than allowing God's grace toward them in gifting them to humble them, they allow it to cause them to think that they deserve more, 
They deserve more than anyone else. Look at me. You see, I need more power, more praise, a higher status than anyone else. What a contrast to the heart of Christ. What's the heart of Jesus? Though being God in every way equal with God, we read in Philippians 2, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Listen, again, watch your take home here. Satan sought exaltation resulting in condemnation. Jesus willingly chose humiliation, resulting in exaltation to the highest degree, so that at the name, right, of Christ, every knee will bow. Given him the name which is above every name, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. To be first is to be last. To be greatest is to be the servant of all. In verse 16, those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who uh, shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? In other words, he never showed mercy. There was never mercy. He came only to rob, to kill, and destroy. Sound familiar? Can I give you a quick application Sometimes, you and me, we, sometimes you just need to release the captives. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, this king would take prisoners, but he would never let any of them go when their time was up, when they had served their, their time. Now, now we read that hell will hold him forever. What am I saying? Guys, we can hold people in the prison of unforgiveness and never release them. Never show mercy to them. And I'm just going to tell you, it can backfire to leave us in a prison of anger, of bitterness, of resentment. Now, I'm not saying that in the case of just, you know, a a true violation, uh, that justice shouldn't be served. I'm saying we need to learn forgiveness. Guys, write it down again. Read it later. It's Luke chapter 6, verses 36 through 38. God holds us accountable to the standard we hold others to. Now, as for me, I desire mercy. Uh, Blessed are the merciful, right? For they shall receive. Come on, you guys awake? Mercy. Mercy. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Come on, who needs some mercy? Right? So let's learn forgiveness. And in verse 18, all the kings of the nations, all of them sleep in glory, everyone in his own house, but you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, in other words, the lowest part, like a corpse trodden underfoot. 
You will not be joined with them in burial because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. The brood of evildoers shall never uh, be named. Prepare uh, slaughter for his children because of the iniquity of their fathers, lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the world uh, with cities. For I will, verse 22, rise up against them, says the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the state, uh, pardon me, the name and remnant and the offspring and posterity, says the Lord. And I will also make it a possession for the porcupine and marshes of muddy water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. When's the last time you had a conversation uh, with a Babylonian? God promises total annihilation. Uh, the finality of this phrase is striking. I will sweep it with the broom of destruction says the Lord of hosts. In verse 24, and the Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, surely as I have thought, underlying this, so it shall come to pass, and as I have purposed, so it shall stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains tread him underfoot. Then his yoke shall be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the purpose, notice, that is purposed against the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over the nations, for the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? What a frightening and fantastic verse 24 is. Look at it. The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass, and as I have purposed, so it shall stand. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to realize God doesn't even need to utter a word. If he thinks it, uh, it'll come to pass. If he purposes it, it will stand. And here's the beauty. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And if he purposes it, it will stand. What do we learn in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6? It tells us that God has begun a good work in you, and that he who has begun the good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Somebody say, praise God. He will be faithful. If he has purposed it, it shall stand. But the point here is that God's plan, God's purpose will never and can never be frustrated. His purpose will always come to pass. And that's why, guys, it's so important that we seek God's plan for our lives. Not my will, not I will, but thy will. For we are his workmanship, yes, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay? But judgment is coming, notice, against the whole earth, and no one can stop it. Now, look at verse 28, and uh, whoever's closing can begin to make their way up here. That'll be fine. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. 
This is the burden which came in the year that King Ahaz died. Do not rejoice, all you of Philistia, because of the rod that has struck you is broken. For out of the serpent's roots will come forth a viper, and its offspring will be a fiery flying serpent. The firstborn of the poor will feed, and the needy will lie down in safety. I will kill your roots with famine and slay your remnant. Wail, O gate! Cry, O city, all you of Philistia are dissolved, for the smoke will come from the north, and no one will be alone in his appointed times. Guys, um, if you know your Bible history, you know that the Philistines were always at war with Israel. Now that Israel and Judah are being humbled, God says, don't glory in it, Philistia. Uh, judgment's coming your way as well. The whole earth, guys, begins in the house of God. But if judgment begins in the house of God, what's going to become of those who don't know God, who don't fear God, who don't believe in Christ? Look at verse 32. What will they answer the messengers of the nation that the Lord has founded Zion and the poor of his people shall take refuge in it? In other words, in the midst of the judgment of the nations, what's founded on the Lord will be made evident. And that's where surety, that's where security lies. Not in riches, not in military might, not in, uh, you know, fame or political power or whatever, but being founded on the rock-solid foundation of Jesus Christ, amen.